It has been said that if you do not have a goal or a target, you will hit it every time. We understand this to be true about everything in our lives. Everything we do has a reason, a purpose, a goal. Why are you doing what you're doing? Whether it's work, whether it's how you treat your children, whether it's going out on a date night, even the seemingly innocuous things of life where someone says, I don't think he's really doing anything, still has a purpose. I just need to rest. I need to catch my breath. I need to take a breather. I need to just spend some quiet time with my children doing nothing and just bonding. And so we ask, what's the point? And even though we don't always ask that question of everything that we do, we recognize that there is a point to everything. There's a reason. If someone were to ask you, someone were to ask you that question, you would have an answer all the time. Even if it's just, ah, I just needed a break. This is even more true with larger things. You may ask yourself, what exactly was the point of Mount Rushmore? What's the point of that large piece of art or that gigantic building? What is it for? Especially here in the Bay Area, you see all the construction going around all the time. And you know no one's just making that for no reason, just to lose money, just for fun. What is the point of that building? Are they going to be condos? Is it going to be housing for the poor? Is it going to be commercial? What is it for? And the bigger the item, the bigger the act, the bigger the project, the more costly the endeavor, the more we want to make sure, hey, there's got to be a plan there. There's got to be a goal. And that is true as we continue to unpack the resurrection. There's a point there for this world-changing, monumental act of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the subsequent resurrection of all believers. It's not just to show God's power. It's not just to prove that He's alive. It is not just to show the miraculous wonder of the life-giving God. There is a plan that reaches back all the way to the very event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the future and end of all things, the end of days, the eschatological future. And this morning, we begin looking at that plan. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 24. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 24. If you have joined us for the first time this morning or recently, we have been studying 1 Corinthians for oh, about a year and a half now as we unpack God's Word verse by verse, if not word by word. And we have found ourselves in 1 Corinthians 15, which is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but only because Paul is explaining the resurrection of believers, because the two are connected. So what had happened was the ancient church of Corinth, some of them were doubting the future bodily resurrection of human believers, Christians. And so Paul says, well, you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means you must believe in your future resurrection. And if you don't believe in your future resurrection, then you can't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The two are interwoven. And so he comes, we come now to verse 20, 
through 24, 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul continues. He says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. So clearly this is a long time span, and we are given an overview of the plan of God. And so this morning and in two weeks, next week being Easter Sunday, We'll continue this passage in two weeks, but this morning we'll look at the first, the first two rather, of four stages of the resurrection plan. That's our outline for verses 20 through 24, four stages of the resurrection plan. I begin with our first stage in verse 20, which is the resurrection pledge. The resurrection pledge. Again, let me read for you verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. If you've been with us in previous weeks, he, we saw in the previous passage that Paul lists a bunch of hypotheticals. Hypotheticals if Christ had not been risen, which he says would be true if you are not to be raised. And after listing all the terrifying outcomes for the church and the Christian life, had Jesus not been raised from the dead, Paul now reminds us and the Corinthians, but Christ indeed was resurrected. So you don't need to worry about all of those things, your faith being worthless, you still being in your sins, you being most to be pitied, for example. He begins in verse 20 by using the phrase, but now. Now, speaking not of time, as in right now, at this moment, but logical. All the things he listed in verses 12 through 19 would be true, logically, if Christ was not raised, but he is raised. Logically, we understand that he is raised because of the scriptures, because of our lives, because of the testimony of those who saw him. And this logic is why the ESV translates this phrase, but now, in fact. And the NIV says simply, he has indeed been raised. The logical flow here, found in that word now, or in fact, is twofold. First, to show that since none of the hypotheticals that we saw in verses 12 through 19 are actually true, it stands to reason that Christ was raised from the dead. But also, secondly, to show how Christ's resurrection makes the resurrection of believers inevitable. If you have one, you must have the other. This is further emphasized yet again by Paul's use of the perfect tense in the word raised. You don't need to know what perfect tense means. Let me explain it. It means that it wasn't just a past event that remained in the past, but that he is still raised. He is still alive. He is risen permanently. We know the significance of that, but this passage will go deeper into that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. 
the significance of Christ's permanent risen state. Incidentally, in this long section, as he is defending the resurrection of the dead, this is the last time that the resurrection of Christ will specifically be mentioned in his argument. But we know that he's already made a strong case and a firm foundation that everything he is saying about our faith and specifically about the resurrection of the saints is based on Christ's resurrection. There's really no need to continue repeating it. And as such, there is an order of things that this miracle allows. And this first stage of the plan goes back 2,000 years ago for us to Christ's resurrection. He was the resurrection pledge. When this resurrection occurred, he opened up the possibility and promise of future resurrection for the rest of us. He is, as Paul says here, the first fruits of those who are asleep or dead. The euphemism of the dead being asleep, emphasizing that they will one day wake up or rise again. What is first fruits? You're probably familiar of the concept of first fruits in the Old Testament. It's found throughout there, and it is used literally in the Old Testament. The Corinthians, in reading this, would understand what Paul is saying. Us, not so much. We don't really say that much, first fruits. So allow me to explain. In Old Testament times, you know that the Israelites were bound by very specific rules or laws given to them by God. And the Israelites at that time were largely ruled by regulations based on the fact that they were an agricultural community. In other words, they grew their own food. They raised their own livestock for food, transportation, and working in the field. And in that, there was a requirement placed upon them by God to give the first of their crop or flock to the Lord in thanksgiving. Literally, the first. And that's why we get the phrase, first fruits, first ear of corn, first calf, first head of wheat. Don't turn there because we're gonna, I'm going to breeze through a lot of these, but Exodus 23.19, repeated in 34.26 of Exodus, says, You shall bring the choice first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God. Leviticus 23.10, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give to you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And that passage, Leviticus 23, goes on to explain the procedure for this offering of first fruits. It was a big deal. Later in Numbers 19, or 15 rather, in verse 19 and following, it speaks of not just actual grain of the harvest, but food that has been prepared, food in general, as it is told to the Israelites that even the first batch of dough that they make, after grinding the wheat and mixing the flour with water, that first batch of dough was to be given to the Lord as an offering. The first fruits 
even of their prepared food. Numbers 18.12 tells us that the first fruits of oil, which is not grown, it is processed, it is prepared, as well as wine, were to be given to the Lord. Again, an emphasis of not just what you cut from the field, but even the food that you prepare, the first of which was to be given to the Lord. Deuteronomy 18 even mentions first fruits as being partly the first shearing of the sheep. The first batch of wool of the season was to be offered to the Lord. All this to say that God clearly wanted the Israelites and all God's people to always prioritize Him first in their profits and their labors. And you can imagine the sacrifice this would be and how challenging this would be for some, if not many, to be waiting not only for the right season, but after doing all of the work, waiting day after day, week after week, month after month for your field to finally produce that first ear of corn or that first grain of wheat so that you and your children can eat. Finally, day after day, watering, tilling, weeding, fertilizing, keeping out pests that could destroy your crop. It's hard enough now. Imagine doing it without modern pesticides or machinery. Finally, you see that little bud. And in a few days, that first edible vegetable comes out. You're excited. The kids are running around in anticipation, but you don't eat it. You don't grab it and bring it to the kitchen. You don't share it with friends and family. You don't do as I, as many of you parents like to do, give my kids the first nibble. No, you take it, you save it, and you bring it to the Lord. By the way, there is a whole sermon there about what you and I do with our money when that paycheck first hits our bank accounts. What is on the top of your list when you get that windfall or that Christmas bonus? Something to think about, but that's for another time. To give this first portion of their crop in the Israelites' lives was a pledge. It wasn't just, oh, that was hard, but we're done. It was a pledge. They were making a promise a pledge that this was not the only ear of corn or kernel of wheat that you would be giving to the Lord. The giving of the first fruits was a pledge of the commitment of the remainder dedicated and given to the Lord. But also, as such, the first fruits, and this is important, was an assurance of a full harvest to come. We tend to forget that about the Israelites. We see this copied throughout the ages by, frankly, bloodthirsty cults and false religions where they would sacrifice individuals or sacrifice crops to somehow appease their gods, gods, or goddesses so that they would have a full harvest. It is a 
twist, a wicked, evil twist of what was true of the Israelites. To commit all of their labors and produce and profit to the Lord with an understanding that as they do that, the Lord would assure a full harvest for them. And since this guarantee is from God himself, we understand the faith and commitment among the Israelites that had to be there. And all of these principles, we now jump forward to 1 Corinthians, and when you apply this to the Lord's resurrection, his resurrection, Jesus Christ's resurrection, being raised from the dead as an individual 2,000 years ago, as the first fruits becomes the pledge and guarantee of the full harvest of our resurrections. And that's how Paul is using this term. In other words, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he became the representation and promise of all future resurrections, which includes the resurrection of all believers. By his being raised... We know the rest of the crop is coming. And since this guarantee, again, is from God himself, the resurrection of the Christian is 100% certain. The resurrection of you and I one day, the resurrection of all believers who have died before us and all believers who will die after us is absolute, it is inevitable, it is, it is as sure as the resurrection of our Lord himself. And so, we see that the Father's miraculous intervention that raised the Son of Man from the dead does not only have significance for that event, but is the start of a plan that involves the renewal of all things. When we look at how else the term first fruits is used metaphorically in the New Testament of something other than physical crops, we get a deeper understanding of the closeness of our resurrection with Christ. In other words, how our resurrection will be so like His. In Romans 16.5, Paul says in his closing of that epistle, Greet Epinetus. My beloved, who is the first convert to Christ in Asia. That phrase, first convert, is actually the same Greek word, first fruits, that we have here in 1 Corinthians 15 20. We know that there were many other converts in Asia after this individual, and all of those conversions after him were exactly the same. And what I mean is this. They were not converted by a different gospel. They were not converted to a different belief system. All Christian converts after Epinetus in Asia were converted to Christianity with the Christian gospel, which aligns with the fact that first fruits leads to like further fruits, fruits that will be the same. On a smaller geographical scale, we have the same word, first fruits, used of the household of Stephanus, as we'll see later in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. They were the first fruits or first converts in their smaller area 
of Achaia. Then speaking of the nation of Israel, the Jews, in Romans 11.16, Paul writes, If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, speaking of the forefathers of the Israelites, the first piece, there, the first piece of dough, again, being the same Greek word, aparche, which means first fruits. The lump, being the large, when it's mixed into the larger piece of dough, it all becomes the same dough. And that's the idea. The first piece of dough mixed into the larger piece of dough, it eventually is one piece of dough. Right? Any of you bakers here, you kneading the dough, right? No way can you plop that piece of dough down and go, oh, see right there, let me find the original piece of dough here. It's all mixed in. It's all the same now. What he's saying is they were holy, now the Israelites are holy. And so here's the point. In all of these examples, whether speaking of Epinetus, the household of Stephanus, or the Jewish patriarchs, the first fruits represented all those who came after them. But what is important to note is that those who came after them were the same character or quality. In our examples, Christian Gentiles set apart holy Israelites. And what's more, we know that they were of the same character or, or quality as well as destiny because the first fruits, by their very nature of being first fruits, were a pledge of the same kind to come. So you can go back to the Old Testament. The pledge of the harvest. If there was a particular Israelite who was a wheat farmer, he pledges the first fruits of his wheat and he knows that the full harvest will be wheat it will be the same so let's take all of this and apply it to the resurrection because of the first fruits of Jesus's resurrection we know that more of the same kind will come and that again is us and our resurrections okay that's the point. Our resurrection is guaranteed. A fuller harvest of resurrections is to come. And we'll look at the timing of that later in this passage. And our resurrection will be of the same character and quality. In other words, a fully functioning, glorified body. Jesus wasn't limping, gasping for breath. We won't be limping we won't be gasping for breath. And another aspect of this is answered by the question some may ask. I get it. First fruits, resurrection, Jesus was the first. But wait a minute. Before he died, which means before he was raised from the dead, Lazarus was resurrected. He physically died which is what we're talking about, and was raised from the dead. So how can Jesus be the first if he himself raised Lazarus? Good question. Next point, no, I'm going to answer that. <laughs> because to your question, which was so nicely framed, you could add Jairus' daughter. Remember Jairus being the synagogue 
Uh, Jairus was the synagogue official in Luke 8, as well as Mark 5, who asked Jesus to heal his sick daughter. By the time Jesus got to his home, the girl had died, and they said, don't worry about it, she's already dead. And Jesus says no, and then raises her from the dead. There's also the widow of Nain, who was in a procession for her son's funeral. Jesus, having compassion on her, told the pallbearers to stop. He's just walking by and this funeral procession goes by. That's what they would do. They would walk through the streets of the village with the casket and the dead body. And he says, stop. And then Jesus raises um, the dead body from the dead. Resurrected, Luke 7. So, just by gospel accounts, we can safely assume there were other miracles that are not recorded for us as indicated in the Gospels. But just by what we know in the Gospel accounts, that would make Jesus the fourth fruits of being raised from the dead. So here's how Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. Keeping in mind, and this is so good, keep in mind that we are talking about a pledge of future resurrection of the same kind. Lazarus, the little girl, and the boy whom Jesus raised All were physically dead, like Jesus was. All were raised to life, fully alive, not handicapped, not maimed, not a ghost, not a spirit, but fully alive, like Jesus. But all three of them eventually died again. Jesus was not the first to be raised from the dead. He was the first to be raised from the dead, never to die again. And as wonderful as that is, remember that our resurrection will be the same quality or character as his resurrection, not Lazarus's. We'll be raised from the dead to never die again. Again, not only does this show us the power of the resurrection, not only does this bring understanding to the concept of him being the first fruits of resurrection in light of those he himself raised from the dead before his crucifixion, but this also reminds us of our future resurrection and the fact that we will never die again. We say there is no fear in death. And what that means is we have a hope of eternal life. Christian, you know in your heart of hearts, you long for death. You long to be with the Lord and in eternity. You long to be free from this body of flesh and sin. It's okay to fear dying. Let's not be confused about that. Right? You are not ungodly if you fear dying, going through a painful disease, getting hit by a car, those types of things, okay? It's okay to fear pain. But there's no fear of death in the sense that there's hope of eternal life. I don't want to rub anyone the wrong way. But just a couple days ago, I was at a funeral. 
And it was a funeral orchestrated by a false religion. And I saw and I understood from a human perspective the desire for hope. If you don't really have hope in your true resurrection, to have a, a visual of the smoke from the incense and saying that is her spirit, her soul rising up to heaven and what comfort it gives those people who don't know any better to see the visual of that smoke. Yes, there she goes. And it goes up and so the Lord has taken her. And and, and we feel sorry for the world as we ought to because that's what they have. The height of their hope in death is to leave a legacy for my children and grandchildren. A big inheritance so they can buy a house. Noble by world standards to be sure, but is that all? Friends, we have a hope of eternal life. The things of this world we must pursue. They are wonderful. This life is great. It is in this life that we come to know Jesus Christ, that He grants us salvation, that we strive in sanctification, that we have family, that we share that same hope with others. But what is this life compared to eternity? You ever gone to a nice restaurant that you've been waiting weeks, if not all year, to go to? Some of you have the same restaurant you go to you only splurge on your birthday or your anniversary. And you sit down and the host or hostess welcomes you. Man, I've been waiting for this. Oh, I see here that it's your anniversary. Congratulations. We have a special table for you. And you already know what you're going to order because you've been ordering it for the past 15 years. Or if they change their menu, you've been looking at it on their menu online for the past four or five times a day for the past three weeks. I know exactly what I'm going to order. I cannot wait. And then they do this horrible thing to you. What do they place on your table before your starving stomach because you skipped lunch because you wanted to gorge at your special restaurant before they even bring you the menu, that fresh baked bread? Some of you have got to be like me in that within 30 seconds, that basket has been inhaled. Except for that one piece I graciously give my wife. (laughs) And then it's time to order. You already know what you're going to order and you're like, I have no more room. (laughs) Now, these restaurants have good bread, let's be honest. But you've ruined your appetite for the main course because of the bread. The bread is good, but the bread is not fish. The bread is not steak. The bread is bread. And this life is bread. It's good. Enjoy it. But sometimes we live for the bread. So we don't even enjoy anymore the hope 
of the main course. What are you living for? This is not just, oh, you know what, the Lord has granted us, uh, 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 someone was very gracious in uh, giving our church a large sum of money, and so for the next three Sundays, we're going to have a, a catered lunch. How nice, for three weeks. This is the resurrection of the dead unto eternal life. This is big. And all we can focus on is the bread. What a shame. Don't get me wrong here. Enjoy your family. Excel in your marriage. Share the gospel. Enjoy the, the, the gifts that the Lord has blessed you with, with the right mindset and heart. You've heard me say this before. Within reason, being a good steward, you want to take that vacation, take that vacation. You want to buy that car, buy that car. Within the parameters of Scripture, of course. But the problem is, is we get so caught up in this life that we know that there is a next life, but we're not living for it. We're not serving and sacrificing in a way that we will have and enjoy our eternal riches because, man, we want so badly to buy that car that we're going to sell in five years. Or that house so we can just be even worse for the rest of our lives while we pay off that 30-year mortgage. There's nothing wrong with those things. But we focus so much on this life. You say, I get it, I get it. I try not to be materialistic. I try to support the church, support missionaries. Let me take it deeper for you. Have you planned out your children's tutoring and colleges before you've shared with them the gospel? Are you trying to get them to excel in math and reading before you've taught them to be familiar with their Bibles or even bought them a Bible? This world. This world. There's a lot to do. We're scrambling. The world is scrambling. America's scrambling more. California's scrambling even more. And the Bay Area, man, that's off the charts. We're all tired. We're all stressed. It's hard here. It's expensive. Half our church seems to turn around every few years because people leave because they can't afford it. So we're doing everything we can to survive here. But in the midst of that, we forget. We forget. We forget there's something else. There's something bigger. Bigger than not having my children starve? Yes. Yes. Bigger than that. Bigger than owning property outright so that my kids and grandkids would... Yes! Eternity. Not just some little fairy tale promise, but shown to us and proven to us, promised to us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it isn't like looking at your boss or looking at some NFL player while you're trying to play on the field and do better. 
our resurrection will be just like his. We won't be second string. It won't be lesser. We won't be walking through eternity and be like, man, I wish God had given us all the same resurrection. He will. So what are you living for? What's your focus on? Well, we're talking about the stages of the resurrection plan. And here we have referred to the past, the first resurrection, but it makes promises for future or eschatological, fancy theological term for end times, future times, harvest. And we know God's plan is all wise, and part of that wisdom is seen in the connection of it all. In order to understand and establish the reality of what the future holds, there must be this resurrection. Keep in mind that the resurrection is part of the gospel. It's not distinct from it. It's not extra. It's not separate. So, if the resurrection is part of the gospel, which is the good news about salvation and sin, for there to be a glorious future or eschatological reality for believers there still must be the solution to the problem of sin. And the resurrection is connected to that. And that leads us to our next stage of the resurrection plan, the representative pedigree. The representative pedigree. Having looked back at Christ's resurrection, we now look at the present. And by present, I mean the entirety of the church age, going on 2,000 years now. And here Paul speaks of the spiritual state of those in Christ in verses 21 and 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. There are two representatives here, Adam and Christ. In Adam, all of mankind has inherited sin and thus death. In Christ, only believers have inherited life. The sin that we have inherited from Adam is due to his sin. The life we have inherited from Jesus Christ was due to his resurrection. And in keeping with the reality of the resurrection, Paul uses this terminology of death and life. In Adam we die, in Christ we are made alive. Not everyone dies the same way or at the same time or even at a predictable time. Everyone dies at a different time and has since the creation of man. But we do know that death is inevitable. You could say it is a scientific reality. But what you, Christian, must understand is that death is inevitable And death is a scientific reality because of our humanity in Adam. Our humanity and thus our sinfulness in Adam. In other words, everyone who identifies with Adam has inherited a sin nature from him and thus will die. Who identifies with Adam? Everyone. Every human being. Not to be confused with the modern phrase, identify as, which is a choice. What we're talking about here is whether an individual recognizes it or not, 
or even wants it or not. Their identity is rooted in Adam, the first man. You cannot get away from this pedigree if you are a human being, and thus you cannot get away from sin and death. But we're talking about the resurrection, which is all about life, hope, eternity. And as Paul continues, all who identify with Christ, also one man, will be made alive because with him, verse 21, came the resurrection of the dead. As Adam introduced death to the world, Christ introduced life beyond death. Death will still come. He didn't take that away. But we have life after death. And it is important to note that the tense of the word of life in verse 22 is made alive. Just as with our salvation, you cannot earn it, you cannot do it. Science cannot do it. God will do it. Whereas we don't need God for death. Our sinful human nature takes care of that. Which also explains why this phrase made alive in all of the scriptures is never once used of a non-Christian. And if this terminology seems familiar, it is probably because you have read before Romans chapter 5. Turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. In Romans 5, Paul refers to Christ as the second Adam. Both individuals who represented an entire race of people and passed on an inevitable reality. The first Adam, named Adam, representing the entire human race, passing on sin and death. The second Adam, Jesus Christ, representing the race of the redeemed and passing on salvation and resurrection. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Follow along. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world... And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Simply, you can't sin if you don't have rules that tell you there's sin. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Not all, but many. Verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. You understand what he's saying there? Because of Adam's one sin, sin was passed on to all, resulting in many sins. Billions, trillions, uncountable sins in all of earth's population over the centuries. But Christ came because of those sins, the many sins, so that he might pay for those sins. Verse 18, or verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. So then, 
as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, the knowledge of transgression, the understanding of sin. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, On the one hand, you have the penalty handed down through Adam to all human beings. Likewise, you have life after death handed down through Christ to those that confess him as Lord. And what we essentially have is Christ fixing or reversing that which was done by and in Adam. And all of this, keep in mind, is explaining how Jesus, being the first fruits, leads to our resurrection. So we've seen this morning two of our four stages of the resurrection plan. We look back to Christ's resurrection to see the resurrection pledge. We look to the present in our own lives as we are both as believers in Adam, but also in Christ. That is our pedigree, but Christ and Adam are uh, representatives of us. And we'll have to table the rest for after Easter Sunday. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-22, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the clarity of your word that teaches us not only that you were raised from the dead and that we will be raised from the dead, but that there is a certainty, a surety promise that is found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you that that also means that our resurrection will be the same in character. And thank you, Lord, that this plan reaches all the way to the future and into the eternity. So excited to look at what the rest of the passage says as it talks about your victory and putting down all the evil man-made and man-centered powers and rulers of this world. And we're, we're thankful, Lord, that in your plan that we were sinners and have a sin nature because we are human and in Adam, but that the second Adam came, granting us salvation, eternal life, and resurrection unto that life. Help us, Father, to be a people who are good stewards of today, but live for the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.